been here. Uh, good to be back always with our sister congregation. In that time, I was able to uh, go on a sabbatical for four months, which was an amazingly restful and meaningful time with my family. Uh, and we also, uh, in that time, uh, found out we were pregnant with our fourth. So my wife is expecting, thank you, um, my wife's expecting uh, uh, in December we're going to have a little baby girl. So the Lord in his wisdom knew there was too much testosterone, needed to balance things out in our house, and blessed us with a, a lovely daughter. So uh, very excited uh, to meet her, and all the boys are very excited as well. So again, it's good to be with you uh, here at Renewal Mainline. Uh, as if you've been here, uh, you know that we've been going through a series on our core values. Uh, this is happening at both sites, and we're going to be um, focused on this through the fall season. And uh, we're preaching through our core values, uh, and we're able to do so because our core values are simply derived from the scriptures, right? It's not of our own making and our own thoughts. Uh, these core values really just draw from the scriptures themselves, and so we're able to teach and preach uh, through them through the scriptures. Uh, we say that the foundational value here at Renewal, or the engine that drives everything that we do, is the gospel itself. And I know for the past two weeks, Pastor Luke has unpacked for you the gospel, both personally and the implications of Jesus' life, death, and resurrection for us at a personal level, but also even its cosmic implications. And because the gospel is the foundational value, uh, we're not kind of moving past it now to get on with the rest of the core values, because as you'll see throughout our series, each core value is really an implication of, or outworking of, or a result of the gospel itself, right? How do you have true community? How can you have true mercy and justice in this world? It's only a result of and an implication of the gospel itself. So our first formal value is gospel worship. Gospel worship. Now when we say gospel worship, it sounds like we are saying we worship the gospel, which even though we talk about the gospel a lot, and you'll see why as we go through this message, we talk about the gospel so much. It's not saying we worship the gospel. Rather, it's referring to the transformation that happens when a person truly encounters Jesus. When a person truly encounters the living God, they go through uh, what we can call a Copernican revolution of sorts. If you guys remember who Copernicus was, right, everyone else was saying that the sun revolves around the earth, that the earth was at the center of the universe, everything revolves around the earth. Copernicus comes along and says, no, that's wrong, it's the opposite. It's the sun at the center, and everything else revolves around the sun. And likewise, we say, before coming to Christ, our lives were orbiting around something else. We had something else at the center of our life, something else we were looking to for our sense of worth, our sense of purpose, our meaning in life, our sense of significance in life. We were centered on something other than Jesus. But then when you encounter the living God in Jesus Christ, that Copernican revolution happens, where no longer do you orbit around other things, now you orbit around the sun, right, S-O-N, Jesus Christ. He becomes your hope. He becomes your joy. He becomes your treasure. He becomes what makes your heart sing rather than other things. And so the fact is you can actually be a highly religious person, right? You can pray to God. You can serve God. You can do all these things. 
But you can do it in a way where you're still at the center, right? Where you pray to God, you serve God, you do all these things for God, but the hope being because I want him to bless me. And in other words, make much of my life. And so we see that happen all the time, right? Very religious people. You heard about that last week in the account of the prodigal son and the older brother. But for the person who's truly encountered Jesus, you do all that you do, not so that Jesus makes much of you, but you do all that you do to make much of Jesus, to exalt him, to glorify him. And that's how it should be. That's, in fact, what we were created for. And that's what we call worship. Right? It includes what we do here every Sunday, making much of Jesus, but it really should be all of life, that in all of life, in everything that we do, it is to make much of Jesus. This is what Paul talks about in 1 Corinthians 10, 31, right, where he famously says, whether you eat, drink, whatever you do, you do it all for the glory of God, to make much of God. So we want to explore this value of gospel worship, and we're going to look at Isaiah 6, and we'll look at it under these three headings. We'll look at the making of a worshiper, the focus of worshipers, and thirdly, the shaping of worshipers. All right, so the making of a worshiper, the focus of worshipers, and the shaping of worshipers. But before we dive into all that, let me invite us to bow our heads again in a word of prayer. Let's ask for the Lord's help in this. God, we thank you that we can come into your presence the presence of a holy and awesome God beyond our comprehension, but that we can walk in here and we can come as we are and we can come without terror and dread, but we can come even with confidence before your throne. And we know that's only possible because of your son Jesus who has made the way who has torn the curtain apart so that we can approach this most holy God, knowing that we will be fully loved and accepted only because Jesus was and chose to be rejected for our sake and in our place. And so as we come, Lord, open our eyes, open our hearts to the greatness of who you are. Because even as believers, we are always tempted to center our lives around someone or something else, even good things. We can center our lives around these things rather than you. But God, would you open our eyes and hearts in such a way that our lives properly orient around you, Jesus, with you at the center, the ultimate son. Help me, Lord. How, how can I, in my limited mind, understanding, and words, try and express the greatness of who you are? And so I ask for your help and your grace in this time to try and convey, even in part, the greatness of who you are so that we would respond appropriately to you. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. So first of all, the making of a worshiper. Isaiah 6 records for us a very famous vision, right? It's a very well-known passage where the prophet Isaiah is going to the temple and he encounters this, and he has this vision of God. And so we read in verses 1 through 4, In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord sitting upon a throne, high and lifted up, and the train of his robe filled the temple. King Uzziah was one of the greatest, most respected kings in history of the people uh, of the Jews, but he was dead. And even though King Uzziah may have died, Isaiah comes and encounters the ultimate king, right? The king of kings. And it says that the train of his robe 
filled the temple. Some commentators say a more accurate translation is probably the hem of his robe because, first of all, kings in that time, they didn't have trains. That's more like England and stuff like that. They didn't have trains. And so a lot of commentators will say it's probably more accurate to say the hem of his robe, right, which conveys this God is so great. This God is so big. This God is so majestic that even just the hem, right, the very little bottom of his robe is filling up This entire temple, the cuff of his pants, as it were, is filling up the entire room. It says, above him stood the seraphim. Seraphim were angelic beings whose title literally means, the name literally means fiery ones. Fiery ones, which could refer to their appearance of how they looked or to their purity. Because in the Bible, fire often conveys in biblical imagery this idea of purity. And yet... These angelic beings, as impressive as they are, as impressive as they are in their own right, they are pure. They are without sin. What do we see them doing? They're covering their feet, which is a sign in in the ancient Near East, a sign of modesty and respect. But not only are they covering their feet, they're covering their faces, right? These absolutely sinless beings who are pure cover their faces in the sight of God because his purity is on another level. It doesn't even compare. In, re- in contrast to God, they feel as though, even though they're perfectly pure, they feel as though they're almost to the level of being unclean in comparison to the holiness and purity of God. He is, as they sing, holy, holy, holy. Now, in English, when we try to emphasize something, we can use exclamation marks, we can underline, we highlight. That's what we do in our literature. But again, in this time, ancient Jews, what they did was they used repetition. If they wanted to make an important point, they would repeat it. And so when something was repeated three times, it's conveying this is of uber super importance. Like this thing is really important. And what is repeated? That God is holy, holy, holy. No other attribute of God is ever repeated three times, right? Though he's loving, though he's gracious, none of those things are ever repeated three times in the scriptures. What is repeated is that he is holy, holy, holy. Simply put, the reason is that's the essence of who God is. Because holiness means set apart. And so when it says holy, 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 it's saying there's no one even close to him in terms of his greatness, in terms of his moral perfection and purity. No one and nothing even comes close. He's in a complete class of his own. And that's why they say he's not just holy. He is holy, holy, holy. And it says that the sound of their voice as they're chanting this, the whole place is shaking And Isaiah is terrified. So what does he cry out? Verse 5, he says, Woe is me! Now it's interesting when you think about it, when you read the prophets, they use that, that word or that phrase, woe is, when they pronounce judgment. Right? So they would come into a certain town or region, they say, Woe unto you! Woe is you! Right? Expressing, you're under the judgment of God. Woe to you. But what's happening here? Isaiah sees God, 
and he pronounces judgment on himself. Woe is me. I am a man of unclean lips. He continues, I am lost, we read in the ESV. But the older translations use the word undone, which I think is a more vivid way of putting it. Isaiah says, I am undone. Now, what does that mean? He is undone. Well, the late theologian R.C. Sproul, on this passage, he writes this. To be undone, I think I have the quote here, yeah. To be undone means to come apart at the seams, to be unraveled. What Isaiah was expressing is what modern psychologists describe as the experience of personal disintegration. To disintegrate means exactly what the word suggests. Disintegrate. To integrate something is to put pieces together into a unified whole. The word integrity comes from this root, suggesting a person whose life is whole or wholesome. If there ever was a man of integrity, it was Isaiah. He was a whole man, a together type of a fellow. He was considered by his contemporaries as the most righteous man in the nation. He was respected as a paragon of virtue. Then he caught one sudden glimpse of a holy God. In that single moment, all of his self-esteem was shattered as long as Isaiah could compare himself to other mortals, he was able to sustain a lofty opinion of his own character. The instant he measured himself by the ultimate standard, he was destroyed, morally and spiritually annihilated. He was undone. He came apart. His sense of integrity collapsed. Now, you and I experience this even on a human level. Right? When you think you're good at something or talented in some way and you meet someone who is far superior than you, it crushes your self-esteem. It shatters your sense of self. You're kind of a funny experience in my own life. So I, I love football. I love watching it. I love playing it. It's harder now that I'm north of 40. But um, I used to play in a lot of city leagues, right? And especially in my late 20s, I would join these city leagues. I would play with church people. And one of the things I prided myself in was I was often one of the fastest guys on our team, sometimes the, one of the fastest on the field. That's what I prided myself in. Well, one day, the team I was playing with, we get to the finals, and we just look across the field, and it's, it's just, they're all huge, just monsters. Like, you remember uh, Space Jam Monstars? These guys are impressive. And so I look at their quarterback, and I immediately knew we were in trouble because this guy was just chiseled out of stone. He had a sleeveless on to accentuate. He was chiseled out of stone. And uh, first play that came, they're on offense, we're on defense. I'm, in, I'm, I'm basically playing safety. This guy gets rushed. He takes off down the sideline. I'm like, I have the angle on him. I'm fast. I got this. But as soon as I took off and I see him running, in my mind, never in my adult life, did I feel so slow? I felt like I was walking and just watching this guy coast into the end zone, and he continued to do that the entire game. He destroyed us. And at the end, I came up to him and I said, I thought I was fast, but I've never seen speed like you live. And he said, oh, don't feel bad. I, I actually was part of the Arizona Cardinals. He was, I was on the squad, but I got cut. And, he, and I said, what were you clocked at? And he was like, I've been clocked at 4-3. that this is like the fastest guys in the NFL speed. And so in that moment, my sense of speed was shattered. I was undone. 
I disintegrated in this man's presence. I just walked away with my head down. How much more when it comes to the presence of the living God who is infinitely greater in every respect than we are? You know, we feel better about ourselves when we compare ourselves to other people. Oh, I'm so patient, and they're so not. I'm so faithful, and they're so... But in the presence of God, all of that is shattered. We become undone. Isaiah instantly saw who God really was, but as a result, Isaiah sees who he really was. I'm not as great as I thought. They might call me the most righteous man in this nation, but you know what? Yes, there's a nation of people of unclean lips, but I, I am a man of unclean lips. He is undone. But Isaiah recognizes God didn't come to just crush him. God came to cleanse him. God came to make him whole, truly. Verses 6 and 7, one of the seraphim flew to me, having in his hand a burning coal that he had taken with tongs from the altar. He touched my mouth and said, behold, this has touched your lips. Your guilt is taken away and your sin atoned for. Now, there were different altars in the temple at that time. There was an altar of incense, but we know this coal didn't come from the altar of incense. Why? Because the altar of incense didn't use coal. The altars that used coal were altars of sacrifice pointing to the fact that Isaiah's cleansing, Isaiah's forgiveness, Isaiah's atonement would come by way of some substitute sacrifice. By grace, Isaiah is forgiven, and by grace, this disintegrated man is made whole again. And then God calls out, Whom shall I send, and who will go for us? Very simply, it's a call to God's mission. And what does Isaiah say? Here am I. Send me. He exclaims it. He's not sheepish. He's not waiting around for other people. He's, here am I. Send me. It's this, this excitement, this eagerness to go. And then God spells out the job description, which as Pastor Luke read for us, is basically a job no one will want. Hey, you're going to be a pastor, you're going to be this preacher, but no one's ever going to like your messages. In fact, you're going to offend everybody. No one's ever going to change under your ministry. There you go. But Isaiah doesn't say, well, I didn't know all that. Is there some other role for me in the kingdom? Is not what he says. He goes, and he faithfully does it. Think about this. There's nothing in it for him. It's not an exciting thing to do. It's not a fulfilling ministry. There's literally nothing in it for him except pain and heartache. But he willingly goes. Why? Because Isaiah met the living God. And he realized this God had every right to crush me. He is incomparably great and holy. But he has shown me incomparable grace and in response to that in light of that i realize how incomparably worthy and precious this god is and that's why he's willing to step into something that no one would want to do because for isaiah 
It wasn't about him. It wasn't about his own reputation. It wasn't about finding a fulfilling path for his life or fulfilling his dreams and ambitions. His life had simply become about making much of God. That was it. I just want to make much of this God who, who deserves all honor, worthy, is worthy of all honor, praise, and glory. Yet even still, as hard as this calling was, even still, there is grace at the end of this. There's grace in the calling. We read in verse 13, there is a promise that though people refuse to listen, people refuse to reject, and as a result suffer God's judgment, God would not utterly abandon his people. Right? There would be a stump, a remnant left behind. Some would respond in repentance and faith and return to God. It's this assurance of grace. Now, though this vision is unique to Isaiah, right? Only he experienced this particular incident. The pattern of Isaiah's experience is not unique. In fact, the pattern of Isaiah's experience is the pattern, the very same pattern you will find in everybody who has truly met the living God. If you are genuinely a Christian, you will have experienced this pattern. Think about it. Right? Isaiah sees God. I think I have this slide. Right? Isaiah sees God, has a vision of God, recognizes who God is. As a result of seeing God, the next thing he sees is his sin, his own unworthiness. But then he experiences and receives grace and the assurance of God's forgiveness and love. And then what happens? There is this commitment, this response of thankful devotion. Right? This thankful um, devotion to God, submitting himself to God's instructions. What would you have of me, God? And finally, capped off with this promise of God's blessing. Think about it. Every Christian goes through this. I think about my own experience. Late in high school, I grew up in the church. I grew up hearing all the stories. But, you know, it didn't really, really become real till late in high school when it just hit me, through the, hit me between the eyes. Seeing God. Not in a vision like Isaiah, but like this, just in a worship gathering one day. For some odd reason, that was the time God had for me. And boom, hits me between the eyes. Holiness of God and his worth. And I realized I had live, been living my entire life up to that point, selfishly and in disobedience to him. I became aware of my own sin. And I remember to this day being prostrate on the ground. Literally, I was laid out flat during this time of praise. I was flat on the ground, repenting, crying my eyes out. And then what happened? Being assured of God's grace to me through Jesus. It was a response of thankful devotion. And you know what I said to the Lord that day? I said, Lord, I will do anything you want me to do. I will go wherever you want me to go, even if you want me to be a pastor, is what I said. <laughs> Because in my mind, that was the most lame thing you could do with your life, right? I grew to love my youth pastors and all that. But when I was growing up, I was like, why are these grown men hanging out with little kids? This is weird. Like, don't they have friends? Like, why do they want to hang out with us? And it's like the most lame thing you could do. Even if you want me to be one of those guys, I'll do it. And the Lord has a sense of humor, and here I am. But it was this just response of thankful devotion. And throughout our lives, comes this constant assurance. What's the promise given to us? I am surely with you to the very end of the age. 
your labor for me is not in vain. That's the pattern we see in Isaiah. And that's the pattern you should see and that you will see in the life of every true believer. You've experienced the same thing. That is the making of a worshiper. Second, the focus of worshipers. Now this pattern we see in Isaiah's experience and in our own experience is really just, it's the gospel. It's the pattern of the gospel. I see God. I see my sin. I see his grace through Jesus Christ. I see that I'm assured and forgiven. I want to commit myself to make much of him. And I see that he promises to be with me and bless me. Right? That's the pattern. And you see not only this pattern of the gospel play out in the individual lives and experiences of people throughout the Bible, throughout history. But here's the fascinating thing. You see this gospel pattern play out when the people of God gathered to worship him. The actual, we can call it the order of worship, in uh, biblical gatherings, you actually see the same gospel pattern. Brian Chappell, former president of Covenant Seminary, currently pastoring in our denomination, wonderful uh, man of God, he masterfully lays this out in his book, Christ-Centered Worship. And so just a few examples. I have the slide for you to kind of help you track because it, it, it's a lot, but I'll go through it quickly. In Deuteronomy 5, right, famous account where they're about to enter the promised land, the new generation. They're reminded of the covenant. Deuteronomy 5, Moses summons all the people to hear these covenant obligations. But before he gets to that, before he tells them what to do, he walks them through history again. And he starts by saying, remember the first time you experienced God on Mount Sinai and God came in fire? You saw God. And he reminds them, and you know, remember what you experienced? Absolute terror. You guys thought you were all going to die. You were terrified. You saw God. You saw your sin. But then he reminds them of the grace of God. Because before he gets to the Ten Commandments, you know how he starts? Before he lists all the commandments, he says, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. He doesn't say, if you follow the Ten Commandments, I'll become your God. No. He says, I am your God by grace. You didn't deserve it. I simply chose to bring you out of the land of Egypt. I saved you by grace. So by grace, you are my people. You see that assurance. Now, because you are my people by grace... Here's what I'm asking of you. Respond in thankful obedience. Ten commandments. And then it ends with a promise of covenant blessing. That's Deuteronomy 5. Second Chronicles 5 through 7. I won't touch upon it, but another example. When Solomon, major worship service, Solomon dedicates the temple, you see these same elements again. Seeing God, seeing our sin, seeing his grace and assurance, forgiveness, thankful obedience, covenant blessing. In regular Old Testament temple worship amongst the Jews, here's how their worship would go. They would go to the temple. Everything was surrounded around the temple. They would walk up the mountain because the temple was literally on a mountain. When you went to worship, you're literally going up a mountain, which is why in the psalm you read the title of, it says, Song of Ascents, because you're literally walking up a mountain. And in their walking up to the mountain, you know what they were doing? They were beginning worship at that time by meditating on God, meditating on his character, meditating on who he was, so that when they arrived at the temple, the first thing that they did was they offered the first of three sacrifices. 
So the first sacrifice that they offered was a purification offering. What's the point of that offering? It's when a person confessed their sin. Because they just spent the whole time thinking about the character of God and who he was. So then they respond by confessing their sin and acknowledging their need for God's atoning sacrifice for their sin. Then came the ascension offering that what? Assured a person. Gave them the assurance that they were forgiven. That God had cleansed them. That they were welcomed in his presence. And under that same offering was this heart of commitment to be devoted to God, to live for his purposes. Then thirdly came the peace offering, which was a means of thanksgiving and celebration. And what are they celebrating? They're celebrating that the, the fact that they have fellowship with God and they live under his blessing. In the New Testament, the early church, we don't have such clear accounts of like a order like that. But what do you see? The elements of worship. They devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching, breaking of bread, prayer. And the thing about each of those elements, what do we see in the New Testament church? Is that they were all unabashedly, overtly gospel-centered. What is the breaking of bread? It is a reminder of the gospel every time they meet. And what did the apostles teach about? When you read the book of Acts, it is clear it was always about the gospel, the person and work of Jesus Christ. So, laying that out for us, what are we to take away from that? What are we to take away from the fact that we see, even when the people of God gathered, not only did individuals experience this pattern of the gospel, but when they gathered as the people of God, you see this pattern of the gospel. What do we take away from that? Two things. First, it points to the fact that the gospel, the story of Jesus' life, death, and resurrection is the central storyline of the Bible. A lot of people out there, when they look at the Bible, they look at it like a bag of pearls, right? Where you reach into the Bible, here's the bag of pearls, give me a nice little nugget of moral, like moral teaching. Be like this. Learn from this. Live like this person. You see their example? And for some people, that's how they view the Bible. It's a bag of pearls with good nuggets of wisdom to help me live right. But the Bible is not a bag of pearls. What it is, is using the same analogy. If you dip your hand into a bag, you grab a pearl, but you pull on it, and you realize as you pull, there's many pearls because it's a pearl necklace. You see, every single thing in the Bible, every story, every teaching, every account is all connected and it's all part of one overarching story, the story of the gospel. It's all about Jesus' life, death, resurrection, and God's plan through Jesus to save the world. It's the center of the Bible, and Jesus is at the center of that story. This is exactly what Jesus himself said. Luke 24, after his resurrection, he's walking on the road to Emmaus. And what does he say to his disciples who didn't recognize him yet? These are my words that I spoke to you while I was still with you, that everything written about me in the law of Moses, the prophets and Psalms, must be fulfilled. Law, prophets, and Psalms, what is that? That's all the genres of the Old Testament. In other words, that's the entirety of the Old Testament. Jesus is saying, it's about me. I've shared this before, but I'll share it again because it's amazing. But it's Sinclair Ferguson in his book, preaching Christ from the Old Testament, I want to show you how this works. Listen to this. Jesus is the true and better Adam, 
who passed the test in the garden and whose obedience is now imputed to us. Jesus is the true and better Abel, who though innocently slain, his blood now cries out, not for our acquittal, not for our condemnation, but for our justice. Jesus is the true and better Abraham, who answered the call of God to leave all of the comfortable, familiar home, go out into the void, not knowing where he went, to create a new people of God. Jesus is the true and better Isaac, who is not just offered by his father, but sacrificed by his father. And when God said to Abraham, now I know you love me because you did not withhold your only son whom you love from me, now we can say to God, now we know you love us because you did not withhold your only begotten son from us. Jesus is the true and better Jacob who wrestled and took the blow of justice we deserved. So we, like Jacob, only receive the wounds of grace to wake us up and discipline us. Jesus is the true and better Joseph who at the right hand of the king forgives those who betrayed and sold him and uses his new power to save them. Jesus is the true and better Moses who stands in the gap between the people and the Lord and who mediates a new covenant. Jesus is the true and better rock of Moses who struck with the rod of God's justice now gives us water in the desert. Jesus is the true and better Job, the truly innocent sufferer who then intercedes for us and saves his stupid friends. Jesus is the true and better David, whose victory becomes his people's victory, even though they never lifted a stone to accomplish it themselves. Jesus is the true and better Esther, who didn't just risk losing an earthly palace, but lost the ultimate heavenly palace, who didn't just risk losing life, but it cost his life to save his people. Jesus is the true and better Jonah, who was cast out in the storm and deep so we could be brought in. Jesus is the real Passover lamb, innocent, perfect, helpless, slain, so the angel of death will pass over us. Jesus is the true prophet, the true priest, the true king, the true temple, the true sacrifice, the true lamb, the true light, and the true bread. The entire Old Testament points forward to Jesus, and it prepares people in preparation for the work that Jesus would do. The entire New Testament looks back, unpacking the implications of what Jesus did. The storyline of scripture is gospel-centered and Christ is at the center of that story. Second, we see this gospel pattern of worship throughout the Bible. What do we draw from it second? If we see the people of God from Old Testament to New worshiping by that gospel pattern with the themes of the gospel shaping their worship itself, should that not be true for us? And the answer is yes. It certainly should be true for us. That needs to, the gospel needs to be the focus in our worship. Think about what makes what we're doing here every week different from what happens in a synagogue. In a synagogue, they talk about the holiness of God. In a synagogue, they talk about obeying the living God. In a synagogue, they talk about even forgiveness. In a synagogue, they talk about salvation. You know, in seminary, when we, did, we had preaching classes <laughs> to try to help people preach better, and these poor seminary professors would have to sit through some horrible sermons <laughs> as guys are just learning how to preach. And one of the things, one of my professors, I remember, he'd always say is at the end of the sermon, a guy preaches his heart out, and then you get critiqued in front of everybody, and the seminary would be like, or the professor would be like, it's good. But that was a synagogue sermon. So what? 
that was a synagogue sermon, meaning you could have preached that in a synagogue. And they would have been like, yes, <laughs> amen. What's the distinction? The distinction of Christianity is our focus on the person and work of Christ, the gospel, that in him and only in him is salvation, that the Old Testament is all about him. That's the distinction. Even in heaven, the worship in heaven, what are the saints singing about? Not just generalities about God. Revelation 5.12, worthy is the lamb who was slain to receive power and wealth and wisdom and might and honor and glory and blessing. Christ is praised for his saving work. And it's not that we neglect the Father and Son. The Father sent the Son. And the Spirit accomplishes and applies the work of the Son. And so, yes, it's Trinitarian, but you see, Christ is at the center. This is why in our worship each Sunday, not only are we committed to preaching the gospel, preaching Christ from every text in Scripture, which we believe the gospel, Jesus himself said, it's about me, not only are we trying to give you the gospel in our preaching, but in the liturgy itself. In the liturgy itself. Now, when we hear the term liturgy, perhaps for some of us, it's like negative. When you hear liturgy, you think old, boring, wooden, so traditional. But the fact of the matter is, everyone has a liturgy. Every church has a liturgy whether they call it that or not, because all a liturgy is is how you order your worship. And everybody orders their worship based on what they think is important. You know, uh, the church, we look back on the, the 80s, and you know there's the whole seeker-sensitive church movement. A lot of people look at those times and say, you know, there were some mistakes made. You know, God used it, but there were some mistakes made. For instance, they did no confession of sin. They didn't even talk about sin. Because in their minds, it's people who aren't Christian, they're going to come and they'll get offended and they'll never come back. So let's just erase sin out of our liturgy. We want no time of confession, no time of repentance, no even mention of sin. And you see, without going further into it, you're conveying a value. You're conveying what you think matters the most. Well, here at Renewal, what we feel matters the most is what we feel that God tells us should matter the most. The story of the gospel. And our liturgy is shaped this way. I don't know if you realize this, but think about it. I'll walk us through it right now. Call to worship. First thing that happens, we invite you in, and there's a scripture read to remind you about what? The God that you've come to worship. It's helping you to see God. This is who he is. And the songs that are selected are meant to point you to who he is, to lift your eyes to who he is. Next thing that comes in service, after you see God, the next thing you should see is your sin, which is why we have this time of confessing our sin. And then what are we after that? Just as happened with Isaiah. The coal only pointed to the ultimate sacrifice who removed sin, Jesus Christ. And so we are assured of our forgiveness and the love of God because of Jesus. Assurance of pardon. And then what? There comes offering even the Lord's Prayer, which are what? Expressions of thankful devotion. In light of your grace to me, take all that I am. 
take my, my time, talents, treasure. It all belongs to you. Not my will, but yours be done. Your kingdom come. Your will be done. And then we sit and we listen to the sermon. And yes, in the sermon, it also helps us see Christ. But it's also receiving God's instruction with the heart that wants to obey and make much of him. And then we leave how? With the benediction which reminds you of his covenant blessing and assures you he is with you always. This is why we do what we do, and this is why we ask, don't be late to service, <laughs> right? Because you're getting the gospel in the liturgy, you're getting the gospel in the preaching, and this is what not only God has uh, um, designed and said is good, but it's what we need. And this is what I'll close with, the shaping of wor worshipers. Why did God design it like that? Why did God desire us to walk through the gospel story, the story of salvation, over and over and over and over again, as regularly as we can? Why? And it comes down to this. We fail to realize how deeply entrenched we are in the liturgies of our culture. Meaning, there are all other storylines being preached to you about what you should be living for, about where your value is found, where your worth is found, about where the happy, good life is found. Culture is just bombarding us. In other words, we are receiving all kinds of calls to worship. And just hearing the gospel once doesn't cut it when you're bombarded daily with these competing messages. Some of us, our entire lives, we've been hearing these competing messages. The late writer, David Foster Wallace, he gave this powerful commencement address to Kenyon College. He wasn't a Christian, but he shared some very insightful words and he ended up committing suicide. It was very tragic. But in his commencement, he hits upon something that scripture says. In the day-to-day -day trenches of adult life, there's no such thing as atheism. There is no such thing as not worshiping. Everybody worships. The only choice is what we get to worship. And, out, and an outstanding reason for choosing some sort of God or spiritual type thing, type thing to worship, according to him, is that pretty much anything else you worship will eat you alive. If you worship money and things, if they are where you tap real meaning in life, then you will never have enough. Never feel you have enough. It's the truth. Worship your own body and beauty and sexual allure, and you will always feel ugly. And when time and age start showing, you will die a million deaths before they finally plant you, bury you. The trick is keeping the truth up front in daily consciousness. Worship power, and you will feel weak and afraid, and you will need ever more power over others to keep the fear at bay. Worship your intellect being seen as smart, you will end up feeling stupid, a fraud, always on the verge of being found out. The insidious thing about these forms of worship is not that they are evil or sinful, although we would say they were, but he says this. It is that they are unconscious. What's he getting at? We worship all these things, and you don't even realize you're doing it. These things are driving our lives. We're not even conscientious of it because it's so deeply ingrained. You've been bombarded with these messages, perhaps for some of you guys from the moment you're Born, your entire life, the message from your parents, you know, whether overtly or indirectly, the message you receive, the liturgy, the storyline you receive is your worth depends on your performance. 
And when you're successful in life, that means you mean something. And when you're not, you're a failure, then you're not valued. You're not loved. Right? Some of us, our entire storyline was to, to have a sense of worth, I need to be beautiful, attractive, smart. And when you're not, you're destroyed. And these are the liturgies that are bombarding us, which is why hearing the gospel just once in a while won't suffice. It would be one thing if our hearts operated like an assembly line, right? Where it's, here's the gospel, part A, you got it. Now, let's move on to the other parts because you already got the gospel. It would be great if it worked that way, but it doesn't. Our hearts do not work like that, which is why we need constant reminders. We need to go back to the gospel again and again and again because these liturgies, these false storylines are pounding us again and again, and we fall for it all the time. And so by God's design, he wants to reverse the effects of this by bringing you here every week to remind you where's your worth, what is your purpose in life, what really matters in life, Whose love matters most? Whose acceptance, whose approval matters most? And to let your heart be reoriented and settle there. And this is so important that Sundays, I would say, Sundays are necessary and required, but they're not enough. It's got to be daily. Because if you're being pounded daily with these false storylines, then equally you need to be pounded daily with the story of the gospel again and again. And so this is why we use this phrase at renewal. Preach the gospel to yourself every day. Every single day when you come into prayer, you come, see God, see my sin, see Christ in his assurance, commit myself to him, leave with his blessing. I come before the word of God. What am I seeing of God? What am I seeing of my sin? What am I seeing of Christ in his assurance and forgiveness to me? What am I seeing God call me to do? And how am I assured of God's uh, promise of blessing? And you walk the more you're walking in the paths of the gospel, the more you're shaped by the true storyline and freed from all those false storylines. This is what Paul is talking about in Romans 12 too. I appeal to you, brothers, by the mercy of God, present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and pleasing to God. This is your spiritual act of worship, not just Sundays, your entire life. And how's that gonna happen? Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind. In what? In the gospel, so that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good, acceptable, and perfect. There will be days when you are frustrated by your sin, when you feel like a, 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 a failure. And as you return to the gospel, you're reminded, Christ forgives me. Christ has purchased victory for me. This is not my master. There will be times where you're frustrated by the sins of those around you. Maybe your friends, maybe your family members, your spouse. Lord, I live among a people of unclean lips, right? You're just so fed up with them, so frustrated. Your heart is filled with criticism. You're so critical and judgmental. Then you come before the gospel, and what happens? You see God again, and you say, I am a man. I am a woman of unclean lips. Who do I think I am? I'm no better. And you're filled with humility, gentleness, meekness, towards those around you. There are days when you feel like the world is falling apart. That's what Isaiah felt. Uzziah was dead. Hostile nations are about to pounce on them and conquer them. Everything looks grim. Then what happens? Isaiah has a vision of God on the throne. God is on his throne. And likewise, when you feel like life is falling apart, everything's going wrong, and you come daily before the Lord, 
you remind, you're reminded Christ is on his throne. Your heart is filled with peace. There are days when you feel like the work that you've been called to is pointless. Nobody notices. Nobody cares. You're exhausted. You're struggling with despair like Isaiah. Nobody's listening. Why am I doing this? But then you're reminded of the gospel truth. Surely he is always with you. And that if he has given you the charge to be there, your labor in him will never be in vain. There are days when you're tempted to worship something else. But then you remember, you look to God. You see a God so holy, the angels hide their face. A God who had every right to destroy you, crush you. But instead, what does Isaiah write? He was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. With his wounds, we are healed. We are made whole again. And what happens? Your heart is filled with love for God. So would you say, how could I ever turn from him? How could I ever turn to something else and center my life on something else? He is so good to me. He is so precious and so sweet. Here am I, send me. Closing quote here, the author of The Little Prince, famous book, right? Hard name to say, though. Man, I never took French. Antoine de Saint-Exupéry, my best attempt. (laughs) But here's what he says. If you want to build a ship, don't drum up people to collect wood and don't assign them tasks and work, but rather teach them to long for the endless immensity of the sea. Teach them to long for the endless immensity of the sea. Likewise, it's when we grasp the immensity of God's holiness, but also the immensity of God's grace to undeserving people. The immensity of his love for you, how much he treasures you because of Jesus. It's when you grasp the immensity and beauty of who he is that you worship Not because I have to and I'm supposed to. You worship because you want to. You say, here am I. I want to go. Send me. You want to change and be transformed. Not because you're supposed to, but because you see sinful ways of living, how they break the heart of your loving and merciful Savior. And the more you rest on the immensity of his love, change happens naturally. So many people walk around their lives, be more patient. Maybe on the way to church, couples, you got in a fight, right? And you're like, oh, I shouldn't have acted like that. And what do we often do? Next time, be more patient, be more patient, be more patient. Your spouse is going off, and your mind is, be more patient, be more patient, right? Never works, though. That's like telling people to build the ship, go get wood, go get this, go get that. No. How do you, how do you become patient? You behold the beauty of the living God who was patient with you. And then patient just, patience overflows naturally. You, uh, final, final thing and we're done. Remember when you first learned to drive as a teenager? You're driving, you're so aware, hyper aware. The lines, oh my goodness, this is so hard. Is there a car on my left? Is there a car on my right? Like how, how I can't keep it in the lines. Why are these lanes so narrow? You're hyper, like, aware of everything. Click, break, right? But then what happens? The more you drive, the more you drive, the more you drive, the more you drive. You don't even realize how you got home sometimes, 
right? Just, oh my goodness, <laughs> I drove home, but I was supposed to be at work, I mean, right? You just do it mindlessly. It just, it just happens. And likewise, the more you train your heart in the gospel and you drive down the road of the gospel again and again and again and again and again, you know, then love, joy, peace, patience. They're not things you're like, I got to be joyful. I got to be patient. I got to be. It just, it flows. Focus on the immensity of who God is, the immensity of his grace. That's what made you a worshiper. That's what continue to shape you as a worshiper and fuel your worship. Let's pray. I'll just give you a moment before we rush out on another Sunday, even as we confess. You know, what we do here matters a lot. Sometimes we don't feel that way. Sometimes we fail to, to see that. But God has deemed this utterly necessary for your soul. So before rushing out of here, can we just take a moment? And even now, just quickly, in your own heart, can you walk yourself through that gospel story? God, thanks for helping me see who you are once again, your greatness and worth. In light of that, Lord, I see my unworthiness but I also see your grace to me in Jesus. And in light of that, Lord, I don't want to live and give my life to other things. I want to live fully devoted to you. And as I do so, I thank you that my labor for you is never in vain and that you are with me to the end of the age. Can you just take a moment and settle your heart and you can walk your heart through that, that gospel pattern, that gospel story one last time before we exit this place for the good of your soul and to the glory of God. Take a moment. we confess we live in a world steeped in other storylines we are bombarded with other liturgies and so often we believe them we, we, we believe that these other things or other people or other pursuits are going to somehow give us what only you can how foolish we are so often but we thank you for your limitless patience with us and that in love you bring us together here each Sunday and even daily call us to yourself to be reminded of the story that matters and is true, the gospel. And as, Lord, we, we are bombarded in so many ways, we ask that you would grant us the grace to immerse ourselves, immerse our hearts in the story of the gospel so that as a result, Lord, worship would not be something we do because we have to, but 
We want to. We get to. Not just on Sunday.